Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Good evening, good afternoon, good day. I'm George Foriano, and I'm the executive producer of Surviving Society's Alternative to Women's Hour. And here are some of my favourite bits. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Surviving Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader-funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. You know, I've really learned a lot from your work and certainly as somebody who started out as an undergraduate at University of Edinburgh in sociology and politics and then sort of moved within critical consumer culture and marketing spaces and then sort of returned to journalism, media and culture and, and back to more sociological studies. It's really, really helpful to know that the book hopefully speaks to conversations that are occurring within different disciplines and actually you know conversations that are perhaps interdisciplinary transdisciplinary as well i'm also thinking about the work of keisha bruce who i know is doing fantastic research which you know challenges the notion of disciplinary differences or parameters and is you know challenging the, the idea that disciplines can or should exist in their current form in academia so what does it mean to do work that isn't compartmentalised as just belong to one disciplinary space. People such as Keisha Bruce at, at Nottingham are, are doing fantastic research related to that. And again, work that focuses on Black people's digital experiences, especially the experiences of Black women. Honestly, big up Keisha. Like, I'm so looking forward to reading more of her stuff because what we've seen already is just so brilliant. And I think her scholarship speaks to that kind of change that you were talking about um that you've sort of seen from 2018 onwards i'm thinking of people other black women like rita gale that are writing about black women producing and becoming the media entrepreneurs in a post-brexit mm-hmm. environment but how that has incorporated with tensions that are deeply rooted and are a response to the racialized and class manifestation of what blackness has been like for so many black women in the uk for such a long time so I I really feel like we're having a conversation we're at the sort of beginning of a kind of like black people consuming digital media in a way these studies were entering a kind of like renaissance type period would you say that yeah I think I'm definitely um maybe encouraged and comforted and also just really grateful to see how much stuff is happening and how much stuff has been happening for a long time so I think Oftentimes there is this idea that there are no, um, you know, black women researchers, writers, creatives, activists who are doing work that addresses these sorts of questions to do with digital media, technology, the marketplace, capitalism, when the reality is we know that's not the case. And just thinking over these last few years about, you know, other scholars such as Rihanna Walcott at King's and just the expansion of possibly black digital studies or even if we don't have the language perhaps right now to articulate exactly what it is but people doing work that you know wrestles with the messiness involved in being a black person online or experiencing different social media platforms content creation processes and forms of representation as well 
I have multiple neurodiverse traits. I am ADHD, so I have attention deficit hyperactive disorder. I have dyslexia and I have dyspraxia. I've got my quote-unquote diagnosis. I don't love the word diagnosis. We're going to talk about that a bit later. Three years ago now. So I'm 29 this year. Yeah, coming up two years ago now. But crucially, my diagnosis stemmed from my PhD supervisor, the legendary Emma Jackson, who I'm incredibly indebted to, picking up on parts of my writing style that she didn't recognize and how I was formulating sentences and encouraged me to go to disability services and get tested. Went to disability services, had the initial test, They were like, okay, we need to refer you. It seems there are multiple things happening here. So because I'm a student at Goldsmiths, I'm a PhD student, I managed to get a discount on my appointment with educational specialist, but he was a psychologist as well. Someone that's educational psychologist then. Educational psychologist. So I did a session with him following the other couple of hours that I'd done at the university for about two and a half hours and he was absolutely astounded Mm. that I had got to the age of 25 and no one had picked up on this he was like you are a high functioning ADHD person and you also have pretty severe dyslexia and dyspraxia but that is to give you um, an introduction to my neurodiverse Mm. traits and I have began to talk about it a little bit on the podcast over the past few years I have tried to talk a bit about my neurodiversity on the podcast but not in as much detail as I think we're going to talk about on this episode because Mm. I myself have been coming to terms with what it means to me to be a neurodiverse high functioning person um what it means to myself as in looking back on my education career so far Vivian let's talk about you I mean I just can't believe you have the same profile like (laughs) (laughs) gosh my neurodiverse twin um I had really similar experiences where um I actually got diagnosed with dyslexia and dyspraxia first um at uni and it was somebody at work I managed to be like an hour late this is when I was like a support worker with the National Autistic Society. It was an hour late, just a mess. I forgot the time, got on the wrong train, went the wrong direction. Just one thing after the other. And I got there, I was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't, I got on the wrong train. She's like, oh, you, you sound a bit like me and I've got dyspraxia. Maybe you should go and get tested for that. So I was like, okay, do you know what? If, if I'm going to get extra time at uni, I'd, I'd love that. I'd love a bit of 25% extra. Did the test. And in the end, they was like, yeah, you've got severe dyslexia and you've got mild dyspraxia. And that was kind of the first, into knowing that there was even a thing like I I never really understood what that was and it was only after I actually graduated from uni you know went traveling tried to live my best life I was like there's something something's not quite right here like something's not adding up and originally it was actually an Asperger's test or assessment that I took with um with like a specialist clinic and I scored low for that but then they did a screening test and found that I scored really high for ADHD and OCD so they then referred me on to that clinic um and then finally yeah ended up getting that diagnosis it was very yeah it wasn't it wasn't even picked up on purpose it was very much kind of just looking for one thing and then finding another people would mention it in jest where it's like oh you act like someone with ADHD but because I didn't understand what that was and in my head that was you know when I think of ADHD I think of a young white boy in class who can't sit still like I, I couldn't imagine what that looked like for me so I very much just didn't even process that here we are <laughs> three diagnoses later <laughs> here we are 
perhaps one of the biggest differences between my PhD thesis and then the book was it was really from 2018 onwards that I got the chance to spend a lot more time in different archives. So whether that was the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton, London, or Glasgow Women's Library in Scotland, I got the opportunity to look at different pieces of writing, different bulletins, magazines, books, and just archived material that really provided me with a window into some of what Black women were doing and experiencing over the decades. So at BCA in particular, there were lots of bulletins and documents which really conveyed this sense of Black women coming together, forms of grassroots collective organising in relation to not only, of course, issues to do with the media, but how issues to do with the media connect to capitalism, connect to people's material conditions, are you know part of these different wider structures which really involve the perpetuation of oppression against Black women. And something that I'll often say when speaking about this work is I think there can there's a risk in implying that critiques of the media or critiques of digital culture are very new or very recent. Sometimes I think people can make quite ageist statements also about generational differences when the reality is there's this real rich legacy of collective organising, of activism that is led by Black women and which not only deals with matters to do with representation politics and the media, but again, you know, the material conditions the oppressive structures that are a part of all of that. That's not new. The the way that activism looks and feels right now might be different. We see that digital media can be used as part of the formation of solidarity and transnational solidarities at that. But I think we need to always acknowledge the, the past to understand what's going on in the present and to anticipate what might come in the future. So with ADHD Babes, um, originally it started off as a Facebook group. Um, the person I was with when I got diagnosed um, was like super pro trying to get like understanding, trying to find support groups. Obviously for them, it was like a revelation because they're like, this is why your temper is so bad. This is why you always lose things, like really making sense of stuff. So they were very pro, like let's understand and resolve this. Um, but all the support groups that we found in London were not diverse. Um, people were a lot older. Yeah, they, I couldn't. Yeah, there was not many people my age or like from similar backgrounds. So it was literally going on Facebook, going into all these groups that have black women in them. Hi, does anyone have ADHD? Hi, would anybody be interested in joining this group? And I think by the first few months, we had like, yeah, maybe six to seven people. And then after that, it started to grow quite organically. Within a year, me and two other girls from the group moved onto a WhatsApp group that originally was just going to be for accountability. But then we started adding more and more people um and then again it just started to grow naturally like people know other people with neurodiversity so everybody was kind of added in then last year during the lockdown one of the girls was um suggested that we start like a zoom kind of session where every week people can check in see how people are feeling um just to kind of reduce isolation and that got really popular like i would share it on twitter and people will share and then there'll be like two or three people like oh i've got adhd i just found out can i join or people who don't have the diagnosis but just want to kind of speak to other people who might have it. Um, so, yeah, it kept growing organically. And by the time I finished my master's in September, I kind of decided that actually this could really be like an official thing. Like we can register it, we can apply for funding. So I kind of called like two of the girls that like we first moved onto the WhatsApp group and we had a meeting, discussed it and decided that, yeah, we're going to make it an official thing. Like and go public because at the moment everything was kind of just internal. 
um, and we already had a name like people in the group came up with a name naturally kind of went from there and it really boomed like from the first session that we published like every event bright has sold out and the wait list has literally like doubled from when we first started the support and the interest and people just like showing appreciation as well has yeah it's been amazing it's only, and it's only been six months since we've gone public mm. So it feels quite unreal, actually. Honestly, Vivian, like it's so inspiring talking to you and hearing you speak. And I'm just so grateful for you guys for setting up this organisation because I completely understand firsthand how important these groups are. And yeah, it's just it's an absolute honour that you've for you to be on this show talking about the work you're doing. I guess before we talk a little bit about some of the themes that have come up in the ADHD babe session, I realised we hadn't really started the podcast really explaining what neurodiversity is who neurotypicals are I mean you can look up definitions of ADHD dyspraxia dyslexia but sometimes I feel like they don't really for some people particularly people like us don't necessarily show us exactly what that means for our lived experiences of the world Mm -hmm. and I think what's really important about what you're doing at ADHD babe in democratizing information of what that is for black women is you're really targeting the the how intersectionally we need to think about race Mm -hmm. disability and gender well I can begin by telling the listeners how do my each neurodiverse traits affect me on a sort of superficial day-to-day level my ADHD means I have got a lot of energy a lot of the time and how I use that energy is a, is through starting tasks mm-hmm. multiple tasks and actually sometimes more the more tasks I have going on at once the more productive I can be which is actually the opposite for people with neurotypical brains mm-hmm. that's my perspective so often throughout my life people have said to me you need to do less in order to do more but actually when it comes to my day-to-day doing more actually helps me do more Mm -hmm. of course there's a balance here there's always a balance and you can definitely go over well I'm talking about me personally I can definitely go overboard as someone with um, high functioning ADHD but I cannot underestimate enough how multiple task um, starting we'll talk about completing helps me um, (laughs) to be a productive person Mm -hmm. so that's my ADHD the other thing about my ADHD is there are certain points in the day that I can work so for me the morning is my ideal time can't really do much in the evening the other thing that's really important about my ADHD how I used to medicate myself was through intense exercise Mm. so I have always done intense exercise from a very young age um, whether that's running gym spin class whatever Mm -hmm. I've always needed high intensity exercise to sort of get me functioning as a normal person Mm -hmm. so that's my ADHD my dyspraxia is for me in my everyday life an example of how dyspraxia has affected me is I can only drive automatic cars. I can't Mm -hmm. drive a manual car. I've got really, really bad coordination. So I don't know my left and right. I like, I have to do the Mm -hmm. L test with my hands. Every time someone's asking me about left and right, I get lost a lot. Places that I've been to 
hundreds of times I'll get lost trying to get there I just have bad coordination in general and then the dyslexia which definitely shocked me when I got that diagnosis because I didn't I again I kind of associated this stuff with the sort of white boys in the school in the class the dyslexia affects how I write and how I'm able to produce work so these combined traits which are apparently quite common for people that have got ADHD is that they have often will have dyspraxia and dyslexia with them combined it's meant that my journey through education as well as experiencing um racism Mm. has been very much pervaded by a lack of care and acknowledgement of how these traits affect my capacity to Mm. succeed in mainstream education I loved this bit so much. We see. The nuanced experiences of black people in Britain are often overlooked and or reduced to representations emptied of substance as part of dominant discourse pertaining to media, the creative and cultural industries, inequality and public life. Nevertheless, some of the experiences of black people in Britain have been the focus of critical events and dialogue over the decades, including the following. A November 1988 conference report on black people, human rights and the media, the Race and New Technology Conference 1985, the Association of Black Film and Video Workshops in the 1980s, as well as an International Women's Week event in 1986 at the Black Art Gallery in London titled And All of Us Are Strong, discussing black women's art. The Black Women and Media Conference at the Factory in West London in 1984, which was attended by over 150 women, provided space for women and women of colour to talk about different aspects of the media in this country, as well as a chance to share their skills. Boom. I think it is really important to specify to people that don't have neurodiversity how these things actually manifest within our day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you mentioned it. The other more uncomfortable thing about having neurodiversity and particularly having ADHD is how it affects your emotions, Mm. your capacity to not get overly frustrated, to not get angry. And I think for a long time when I didn't know what was wrong with me, quote-unquote wrong with me I use things like exercise sometimes self-medicating like drinking excessively to kind of alleviate how these traits would manifest within my social life mm-hmm. that was Let's talk on it. yeah I think because I think even though this podcast is aimed at people interested in politics people interested mm-hmm. in sociology we were talking in our pre-chat about there is an elitism there that is. is that surrounds talking about neurodiversity mm-hmm. but also around education in general and that we all come to it starting from the same point like we mm-hmm. can talk about how meritocracy doesn't exist for days within sociology mm-hmm. but like I need you to think about how even if we dispel the myth of meritocracy you I'm not my brain isn't the same as yours so I'm not coming exactly. to your different ways of learning with the same ways of doing it no it's so interesting to hear like your experiences with it because it now it's even making me think back and I'm like oh my god that thing about excessive exercise I've always done multiple exercises so now I'm even thinking back to secondary school I did netball basketball football athletics rugby how could I have been on every team but now I'm like maybe that's what was actually keeping me on some kind of baseline level that managed to get me through the education system and the same with college like I was on the basketball team 
And then by the time I got to uni, I started doing like really intense mixed martial arts or and then still running on the weekends, doing hot yoga, doing all these things. And I'm like, rah, like that, that's before I had the diagnosis. So now I'm like, that really must have been such a grounding thing mm-hmm. for me to this day. Like exercise is such an important part of my like self-care routine. Cause I know if I don't exercise, my like restlessness um, will be visible. Like my leg will be shaking. I will find it hard to sit still for a long period of time. Yeah, it was really interesting hearing that, I guess. Yeah, so mine is also similar with that, like the intense exercise. And what you mentioned about self-medicating as well, literally because alcohol is a depressant, like it would help me feel calmer. So especially in uni when I was struggling with like going to lectures and even remembering when deadlines was because my thoughts were all over the place, like that really helped in terms of dampening things. And then I guess with, yeah, I think one of my main things with my ADHD is the the kind of emotional regulation. And there's also like a, an association with rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria. The experience of criticism or negative feedback is a lot more intense. You, you feel it. <laughs> in my ch- that hit hard then. And why am I in industry of academia where right? criticism... Where criticism is like the forefront yeah. of everything, everything we do and I feel it. Oh, oh, rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria. There's just so much stuff that is, you know, not in a digital environment. It's not only that there is stuff that isn't available online, but of what is available online, you know, how long will it be available there? So thinking about the short term nature of a, of a lot of what exists in different digital spaces. And yeah, I think digital culture, people research it in different ways but sometimes I think there can be this focus on digital methods or digital spaces at the expense of everything else so what does it mean when as we've spoken about not everyone can access and um, digital technology in the same way right now one of the things that is incredibly frustrating is how people will make generalizing statements about the last 12 months. So the idea that everybody is able to work or be at home or, or be on Zoom or the idea that everybody has, you know, an, an additional device if, if one laptop stops working. So the point that you've made there, I think that is such a necessary one, remembering that no matter what it is we're dealing with, including when we're dealing with digital culture and the experiences of Black people, if we solely focus on digital spaces and digital technology we're missing out on so much more that we need to understand and I think this binary opposition of the so-called online and offline world which many activists many scholars have challenged for a long time is a really unhelpful one because the online is always the offline you know the embodied experience is always connected to what happens on a screen and I think remembering that is a great way to be reminded of those archives, those spaces that don't involve a digital device, but which also are still connected to how people experience um, the internet and, and what they are or aren't able to do or say online. Definitely. Such, such a good point. And again, something else that I have to keep reminding myself, particularly when I'm talking about, as you said, the last 12 months, like there are so many people within the UK that haven't had access to digital space and it's racialized, it's classed. It's such an important thing to just keep talking about. Um, And even like in thinking about who can access this kind of conversation, which is seeking to critically examine who is able or who can access digital life. Like there are people that will not hear 
this sorry I'm, I'm getting a bit I'm getting a bit like um abstract now but it's it's really important reflection mm-hmm. this is what I mean listen I might have to retrain as a digital scholar this is better than sociology I'm telling you <laughs> And it's hard to explain to people because it's just like within my friendship group and within people I dated, it's just like, oh, she's sensitive. Even she over-exaggerates. And I'm not over-exaggerating. This is exactly how I feel. And most times I'm actually trying to cap it because I feel like people are going to take it as too much. But it's, yeah, even if it's perceived rejection or perceived criticism, like, and a lot of people feel it physically as well. Like it's not even just an emotional thing. So I think that for me has been like a long-standing difficulty, especially within intimate relationships. They're really struggling to hear feedback and then that having like an internal effect on self-esteem. In general, with ADHD, there's a stat that shows that um, people with ADHD receive 50% more negative feedback than like a neurotypical person, which makes sense because if we're losing things, if we're forgetting things, people are going to be reinforcing this negative idea that, you know, you're not good enough, you're not trying hard enough. Uh, you're lazy like that lazy word is really thrown around anyhow but the emotional regulation for me like I had a really bad temple I still have it but I'm working on it my temple was really bad that's the only thing that got picked up in school she's got a bad temper give her a counsellor and getting excluded for getting into fights and whatever (laughs) I don't know what to talk about my misbehaviors um so yeah I think the emotional part for me is really difficult um and even that thing of starting tasks like I constantly feel like I'm on the go and that's been I like I didn't know not everybody was like that where it's like I could I'll be doing multiple things and people are like I think you need to concentrate on one thing or you're not going to do as well and I'm like but I can't like if I do one thing I'm not going to be able to do the other thing because they complement one another um, and like you said there's a balance like sometimes I take on too much and then I have a meltdown and I freeze and I don't do anything but in an ideal situation I can have like three things on the go or like I'll have a list of stuff and start one start number three and rotate because I think, and I think it's linked into that dopamine thing of we need the hit. And I guess when you start a new task, there's a hit, there's an, an excitement there. Or if you achieve like a third of it, that like, okay, I've got a third of the way through. And having the motivation to push through the whole thing without having breaks isn't, it's not as easy for like, as it is for neurotypical people. Yeah, I know we've, we've both spoken before about ideas to do with representation and you know whether it's the politics of representation how the term or the claim representation matters is used in different ways um what's tricky is sometimes I feel as though (laughs) the discourse to, to do with this can be very sort of one or the other when I think we can critique the limitations of different forms of representation we can critique you know surface level representation which is held up as as being an example of significant structural shifts and we can also still acknowledge the importance of different forms of representation or more specifically the politics that surrounds that representation or what that representation um, may or may not be connected to so especially for younger people especially you know when you said thinking about you know being a child thinking about what it means to not have access to and not just images because I think sometimes conversations do representation focus solely on images when sort of narratives and you know news reporting stories that surrounds those representations is such a part of the the bigger picture I feel as though like you said that we we can and we should recognize the meaningfulness of different types of representation that people are able to access or people are able to produce as part of their digital experiences and even if it's sometimes the conversations or the debates or the discussions that are sparked by that that in itself can be generative 
Um, you know, within Britain, there are so many different regional areas, there are so many different rural areas, there are so many different places that, as you said, means being a black person in Britain, it can involve lots of different specific experiences that are shaped not only by the nature of Britain, but the nature of, you know, the local and, and someone's immediate surroundings. And I think especially for black people who might be based somewhere that is, you know, predominantly white, um, it, it might be, you know, s- somewhere where there are specific internal political issues within that regional area, which means conversations to do with racism are, are especially shut down, or I'm now reflecting on within devolved nations, sometimes conversations to do with colonialism focus on the relationship between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And, you know, there's a complete misrepresentation of how those relationships are or aren't connected to colonialism. So I'm going off on a tangent here. ADHD has been researched a lot, but when I look at like practical things, I still feel like there's such a gap. Because um, a lot of the people who are in the group are studying. Well, like, we had like a student support type session um, a couple of weeks ago. And people had such similar stories of like struggling through academia, having to repeat, being missed, especially as like, you know, a woman or a non-binary person. They found that p- people um, who are women, the symptoms are seen as kind of more internal, where they're seen as daydreamers or, you know, they're lacking concentration, but it's not external. So they're just seen as someone that doesn't necessarily pay attention. So they're missed. And then add race on top of that, you know, how considered are we really? Or if we're saying that we're struggling or we report that we're struggling, are we believed statistically? So you add that element and then do we even feel like we can ask for help? Are we kind of taught to internalise struggle, blame ourselves and then try and struggle through? So a lot of students are struggling. And when they've, like, we've encouraged a lot of people to go and get the diagnosis within their education system because schools, colleges and universities have a fund to assess students. So we've been encouraging people to do that. And like you said, there's been a pushback because people are kind of just like, you just need to try harder. You just need to concentrate. Uh, You know, have you tried meditation? Very kind of black and white approaches and trying and not seeing the wider picture. Um, And in my head, I feel like there's a normalization of struggle for black people where it's like, yeah, you're struggling, but you'll be fine. And people don't see the vulnerability and the need for support when we're asking for it. But even when they have got that support, it's been really limited. Like the stuff that's available to support people with ADHD uh, within academia is not extensive. Like they've done really well, I think personally with dyslexia and dyspraxia, like I had so much support for that. But for the ADHD, like they don't even have ADHD coaches available within DSA. It does feel quite limited. I feel like the the research moving forward in terms of helping people manage, um, understand and like improve their quality of life. I feel like there's been a bit of a gap there and then especially when you look at cultural differences as well, one of the things that we were like quite adamant about when starting is that we don't want to be just in like another ADHD service that's very bland, very kind of, you know, very rooted in just black and white thinking. Because when we look at other organisations that are like more longstanding and they've got like really huge followers, when we look at what they produce, it doesn't feel very people led. It feels very like, you know, we're up here reading and understanding what this diagnosis is and we're like filtering out the information it doesn't feel like it really engages with like the real people that are living their lives yeah so I feel like there's a gap that's really interesting Vivian and it's reminding me because obviously we're seeing 
a lot more information sharing about ADHD Mm. and in particular I think we're seeing a lot more black women getting their diagnosis and obviously me and you are a case point examples of people getting diagnosed black women getting diagnosed in their adult life one of the pushbacks which has been really disappointing for me is hearing people say well it's on trend to say you're neurodiverse now like everyone's getting this now like Mm. everyone says and everyone says they've got ADHD blah 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 and it's like hang on a minute like these are in the case of black women non-binary people these are people that have spent a lot of time being pushed aside within their education journey Mm. in general whether that's at school or at university and now they're finding out that as well as race impacting how they are treated and are received and navigate education there has been this other element that hadn't been picked up that had been possibly ignored by some people Mm. and people are working out some really big existential things about themselves like Mm -hmm. who are you to say that this is about a trend Mm -hmm. like yeah of course there's going to be more people that have been marginalized that are finding out about neurodiversity because we have been marginalized within our education trajectory of course that's going to have information is being democratized about this stuff then you're going to get more people that are Mm -hmm. going to be coming forward being like hang on a minute this is my experience as well Mm -hmm. let me get diagnosed oh I've got ADHD Mm -hmm. and I know of some people who have suspected they have ADHD and that have decided not to get diagnosed because they don't Mm -hmm. want it to affect how they see themselves or how they are viewed in society. When I got my diagnosis, it was a combination of relief, happiness, but also sadness. Mm -hmm. So the relief, I contextualised the relief as... I thought that there was something wrong with me for most Mm. of my life. I really thought there was something internally wrong with me. Mm. I also thought I was stupid. I thought I wasn't intelligent at all. I didn't think I had the capacity to like succeed in anything really. But I found out that there were these neurodiverse traits and that there was something called being neurotypical, which dispels all of those myths I had about myself for Mm -hmm. as long as I can remember for my whole life thought Mm -hmm. that number two the happiness I found out that I have something that I can find ways to both control Mm -hmm. use to my advantage and it's a big part of me like Mm -hmm. it's a big part of who I am and where I'm positioned in society where I position myself in society how I'm received Mm -hmm. so that was a kind of happiness the sadness was that it took me back to my school years when I spent the majority of school in bottom sets. Mm. I was basically taught, like I had a very similar experience to lots of black kids who grow up in mainly white schools. I was put in English as a foreign language classes from reception, basically told there was something internally wrong with me as to why I wasn't succeeding um and I watched so many white boys growing up get this basically care around Mm. their um ADHD in particular Mm -hmm. and just looking back on that time and realizing that it wasn't about me Mm -hmm. and that I had neurodiversity I had ADHD it wasn't picked up by those that were supposed to be looking after me Mm. 
I was being measured or I've always been measured in accordance with some universalized idea of meritocracy and education, which is for people with a distinctively different brain to my own. <laughs> so those three like mm. things about getting first get my diagnosis were really have been really important for how I've been thinking about um, my life as someone with ADHD. That's so interesting, Francesca. And there's so many things that are going around in my head right now. Thinking about the politics of representation and I sort of a kind of romanticised image of what it might have been like to see more versions of myself like on social media or on TV as I'm growing up. But actually, if we come back to, let's say, children or young people that have access to digital media, I'm going to be a slightly presentist here now. It's the 30th of March today. One of the things that I've sort of been really concerned about is looking at the news and how many black children in particular are reporting on experiencing some really awful cases of racism within sort of predominantly white places. And what that's been making me think of whilst also reading your book is that although that these images can perform a politics of representation for the individual, who isn't accessing those and what remains normative? What I mean by that is just because I'm a 12 year old girl that's now a black girl that's now accessing positive images of myself that doesn't mean that those images are being accessed by my predominantly white peers. What's happening in their lives, as in thinking about racial hierarchies and how whiteness becomes socially reproduced, is consistent. What is changing is we're becoming, I think, digital media has played a role in black people becoming or having a regenerated feelings of, I don't know, I don't know how else to put it other than kind of loving your blackness. And I didn't feel like I had access to those things when I was growing up. There's a possibility, there's more possibility to have all that now because of digital spaces. But also we're seeing possibly more fractures in how race is becoming negotiated online offline sense yeah i feel like you've just summed all of that up perfectly my understanding of what you're saying we should acknowledge that you know digital media social media and different online spaces have provided the opportunity for black people to and beyond just sort of see representations but say and you know hear from other black people learn from other black people connect with each other whether it is Black digital diaspora discussions, there have been moments where Black people can come together, be together, communicate in ways that wouldn't have perhaps been possible, say, 10, 20 years ago, and particularly across countries and across continents. But also we are always dealing with you know, consumer culture and, and commercial platforms, and there are these real tensions between the, the possibility for, say, collectiveness or community formation or transnational solidarity building when that involves making use of these platforms that are very unsafe or very precarious for black people to navigate and this also makes me consider you know to what extent is somebody having to be made visible when say you know looking at a piece of content or when contributing to conversations so I think the affordances of different social media platforms shape all of this, whether that is, you know, a space such as Instagram or Twitter or Clubhouse, and whether we're dealing with audio, video, written words. 
and just the various forms of monitoring and surveillance and policing that are at play throughout all of what's going on. Yeah, thinking about blackness, but also thinking about this in terms of race and class. A lot of the conversations we've had during the support groups have been around this idea that actually when you got the diagnosis, you go through a grieving period because it's literally like you have to accept it. So for me, my initial stage was denial. I literally didn't even read that report for a solid couple of months. That report, so... (laughs) Just to give the listeners context, when you get your diagnosis, you get like a big report that's extremely personal to you. Very detailed. Basically details exactly how your brain works. Mm-hmm. I was so offended. Like, <laughs> who is he talking to? Like, I did not want to read that report. Like, bless the person I was with at the time. They were so supportive and like, supported me to accept and embrace that this is this is real and that's okay. So yeah, denial is definitely in there and there's the process of acceptance, like, okay, this is a thing. And I feel like one of the most difficult parts of the grieving process is like you were saying, acknowledging and moving to accept that we we weren't supported the way we deserved to be supported. Um, we deserved for people to notice. It was their job to notice. Um, you know, we were children. Children require like personalised support to, to, re- to hit their potential um, and to grow in a way where they, you know, they grow with a sense of like self-efficacy um, and good self-esteem. And one of the things that like I did a survey with uh, members asking like, what kind of groups you want to have in the new year, like what topics. Self-esteem was the highest one. And when I think about it, like when we're talking, it, it's like the undercurrent thread because you go through education or even just in terms of socialising, because ADHD also affects like your social relationships as well. And you are constantly internalising things that don't work. So, okay, I've missed my deadline. That's my fault. You know, I've, I keep interrupting people in conversation. That's my fault. I lose everything. That's my, like, everything is internalized because there isn't an explanation. The fact that we are missed is very much because of gender, is very much because of race. Um, and then you add on the whole difficulty of, uh, you know, a lack of access um, for people who are neuro- neurodiverse in the first place. Like the social disability model for me makes so much sense or it's, it's not that people are, disabled per se is that society hasn't provided you know access in a way where everybody can be equal and everybody has the same opportunities and it's the same with ADHD where it's like the education system is obviously pertains like pertains to neurotypical people because they're the majority but they can do things in between to allow people like us to thrive but it's just it hasn't hit that yet and the people that are missed are literally yeah they have to troll through life you know literally struggling and for me and my personal experience like we didn't have the space to say look I'm struggling can I get help it was like if you struggle that's on you to to do better and to try harder so yeah when I like flopped my first year of college I didn't even tell anyone at home I literally I don't even know how I managed to to like bring that up I think I had to take up I had to pick up an extra AS for the next year and the same thing with uni like there's some modules that are just a blank on my transcript because I just didn't I just didn't show up so I feel like yeah we are definitely constantly missed um and the process of accepting that people failed us like society failed us um and now we're stuck here with all these memories and these negative self-beliefs um and now doing the work to unpack all of that but that wasn't mine like that was not mine to hold that was society failing me I'm not the failure I'm not the wrong one I'm not bad I'm not stupid I'm not lazy I have ADHD and I wasn't supported to fulfill my potential not that I didn't feel my potential you wasn't supported to do that so I think that that process, we have a lot in the group. Like we've had people cry at the end of sessions because 
people have been telling their stories and they're like, you are me. Like you're literally me. Like I, I too flopped my year of uni or I had to drop out and I just had to go straight into working because, and that's the sad thing as well. Like I feel really, really privileged that I managed to make it through uni. Okay. And I feel like, I, yeah, I was just lucky. Like I, they, they picked up with dyslexia and dyspraxia. So I got support. My friends are really supportive. Like there were times where they would literally give me their work because I just couldn't do it. And I could use theirs. Like, but some not everybody gets that same kind of lucky stroke. And that, that's what really hurts me as well. Like the system has really failed people to really difficult extents. I think you're totally right. And it's reminding me to sort of incorporate class on all of this, yeah. because one of the things that I'm, I try to be as clear as possible about on this podcast is there is absolutely no way that I would be at this point now about to finish my PhD with multiple neurodiverse traits Mm. as a black woman black mixed race woman if I hadn't had economic support when I got it Mm. so becoming economically secure when I had it by yeah meeting my partner my partner supporting me whilst I completed postgraduate research Mm. There is absolutely no way that I would be able to be sat here now talking with you mm-hmm. if I hadn't had that security. So that's mm-hmm. another really important point to think about. We've got race, disability, mm-hmm. um, obviously ADHD, education, mm-hmm. gender, but also class. Yep. And like you say, like this has been luck. Like mm-hmm. it's, the, it's luck yep. that I am literally sat here now. And what I'm so so inspired by of what you're doing at ADHD babes is there is potent there's going to be potential people's lives that you're saving mm-hmm. lived experiences that you're saving just by democratizing information mm-hmm. by sharing stories because it was you just didn't get that you just you didn't, didn't get that you just struggled through obviously there's been through. people that have been doing work over the years on dismantling this idea of um, black people being um, inferior that's obviously happened for decades and decades within this country um like saturday schools all that stuff but there is a very particular experience that we're talking about here Mm -hmm. that has to be picked up and when you bring in class to it as well Mm -hmm. like having security to both navigate and understand and work towards having a peaceful existence Mm. is so important to consider thanks so much listeners hope you've enjoyed the show um we will be back next week of course thank you very much bye Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.